imagine this. You're a dedicated homicide detective trying your best to solve a terrible murder. Unknown to you, another detective in another town over, or county over, or state over, is trying to solve a murder that looks eerily similar to the one you're investigating, and as it turns out, was committed by the same perpetrator. 10 or 20 years ago, the odds are that the two of you might never hear about each other, and the two crimes might not be linked. Our former crime reporter noticed how hard it was for law enforcement officers to network and communicate with each other and decided to do something about it. He's here to talk about an algorithm that helps police departments identify serial killers. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you for having me. We're delighted. And I want to just start off with the basics. So I guess the first question I wanted to ask you is, how do we track murders? in the United States? Poorly. There's no other way to put it. The United States is unique among Western democracies. We do not have a master list of homicide, unlike most other democratic nations. That's because of the nature of law enforcement in the United States. Most laws are enforced locally. There sometimes is some state overview There really is no federal overview because crime is a predominantly local matter. All of that boils down to the notion that there is no supervision of law enforcement. And the last people our founding fathers wanted to supervise law enforcement was the federal government. So that we really don't have a good system of reporting for homicide. In 1930, Congress created something called the Uniform Crime Report at the behest of chiefs of police, but it was never meant to be an official listing of crime. It was meant to be more an an academic resource about how many crimes were occurring. 20 years later, the, the chiefs of police also asked for more information on homicide, our most serious crime. And that resulted in an addition to the Uniform Crime Report called the Supplemental Homicide Report. Participation in reporting the number of crimes that occur and details of individual homicides is entirely voluntary. Entire states to this day choose not to participate in federal crime reporting. There is no master list of murder which is why our group exists. We're trying to create one. And you know, that is so hard for me to even wrap my arms around. Like, how could that be, that this became a voluntary system of reporting? It is surprising. Most people are surprised when I tell them what I just told you, but that's just the way it is. If you go to England, if you go to Germany, if you go to most Western industrialized nations and ask for a complete printout of all unsolved murders, they would be able to do it. If you made the same request here in the United States, nobody could do it, not even us. We've created a list that we think is about 90% complete, and we could not give you the names of the murder victims. Tom, are we making any progress in moving in that direction? We hope that someday the Congress of the United States puts us out of business. We hope that someday they create master lists. We hope they create mandatory reporting. We've endorsed 
the efforts by the FBI's violent criminal apprehension program to create a violent crimes database. When there are unsolved murders, police are asked to report those cases to the FBI voluntarily. I cannot tell you how underfed that database is. Uh, the vast majority of murders that should have been reported were not. And so I know you have taken a lot of different steps in terms of trying to compel some of this information, reaching out to different states to collect that. What do you think has been most helpful for you in making progress in this area? The Freedom of Information Act. We have sued the, the state of Illinois, and we are currently suing the federal government. On the argument, Your Honor, the people of Illinois or the people of the, the United States have the right to know how they're being murdered and whether those murders are being solved. We've yet to lose on that one, although we're still defending our complaint in U.S. District Court here in D.C. We're suing the FBI and nine other federal departments and agencies for their failure to report murders and other major crimes that federal law enforcement investigates. It turns out that the FBI is a significant investigator of murders. They certainly investigate a great many murders that occur on Indian reservations, and that's how we figured out that they were among the many non-reporters of major crimes. Only about half of Indian murders get recorded in the Uniform Crime Report. Those are for Indians who die in jurisdictions that do a good job of reporting. The FBI has never reported a murder, not one. And we're hoping to obtain more than 30 years worth of unreported murders from the Bureau. We have gotten from them a promise that in two years they will begin reporting the data. They were required by a law passed by Congress in 1988 called the Uniform Federal Crime Reporting Act of 1988, which took effect or was supposed to take effect on January 1st, 1989, that law is in the running for most abused federal legislation because not a single federal investigated murder was reported, not one, from 1989 to the present day. And so, Tom, if you had a magic wand and you could change things for your purposes in terms of helping law enforcement link crimes together, what information would you want them to routinely report? The age, race, uh, sex, ethnicity of each murder victim, similar demographic information about each offender, the circumstances of the crime, which is a theory uh, as to why the crime occurred, was a part of a robbery, was it a, a sexual assault? Was it a, a juvenile crime gang type offense? And the weapon that was used. We would like to include a great many other elements, though. The name of the victim, the name of the offender, some basic information about the crime scene. Did it occur indoors or outdoors? Were there sexual aspects to the crime? It would really help law enforcement if there was additional information about the modus operandi of the killer. All of that information should be centrally recorded because it is terribly useful for detectives all over the country. 
Uh, we've established a website at murderdata.org, and even the limited information we're able to obtain, either from the FBI or from law enforcement agencies that don't participate in reporting to the FBI, is horribly useful to homicide detectives. If they are investigating someone and they are convinced this is not his first rodeo, that he almost certainly has committed other crimes, because of the Murder Accountability Project, uh, they can come to us. And we would be a first step if they find records that intrigue them. An unsolved murder in Poughkeepsie, New York, where their, their suspect was known to have lived on a particular year and, and month they then could see the record in our database and then call the Poughkeepsie Police Department and have a detective-to-detective conversation. Our intended audience for our website are homicide detectives, and they use it quite a bit. I, I can definitely see that. How have police officers typically linked crimes to each other? They typically don't. Criminologists are convinced that most linked crimes are not linked, that uh, a series of crimes usually go unrecognized. It's called linkage blindness. So define that term for us, linkage blindness. It comes down to the nature of how homicides are investigated in in the United States. When someone is murdered, usually a detective is assigned to be the lead investigator to the case. If someone else is murdered, even in the same jurisdiction, usually a different detective is assigned. If there are commonalities to the crimes, the only way those commonalities are recognized is if those two detectives have a conversation over the water cooler about their cases. If those uh, crimes occur in different jurisdictions, say in in different suburbs, uh, that conversation absolutely never happens the inability to completely communicate the the commonalities of a case is the primary cause of linkage blindness. It's a real problem. Police departments, especially large urban police departments, simply cannot capture enough information within their own systems so that supervisors or anyone else would be able to easily recognize what are called signatures, commonalities in the murders of different cases and make Mm -hmm. a link that hadn't been made by the detectives themselves. It's a real problem, and I certainly believe it, that most series of crimes go unrecognized. So how, you know, again, what is the traditional way that um, they've been involved in serial murder. So is it the fact that there's common DNA that's shared among perpetrators? Just trying to get a sense of how that linkage might begin uh, before your algorithm came about, which we haven't even started talking about. In the old days, say 40 or 50 years ago, it would have to be something extremely obvious, almost as bad as the killer writing in blood over the victim, catch me if you can. I mean, unfortunately, killers are not quite so obliging. When there wasn't something so obvious, it came down to luck that detectives recognized that there was a signature so blatant in the, in the killings that they start to look for other killings that had the same signature, whatever it could be. It might be in a sexual murder an unusual method of tying the victim up, 
or an unusual method of, of, of killing the victim. But it has to be something unusual enough that the detective had something specific to be able to query other detectives or, or to query the records looking for commonalities in other murders. So how did you get interested in serial killers? I'm a retired investigative reporter, a retired newspaper reporter. It is the best job in the world. My first job in journalism was back in 1978. I was hired for a little paper in Birmingham, Alabama, the Birmingham Post-Herald, and I was the weekend uh, crime reporter, and things are hopping on the weekends. I cannot so only that, imagine. Um, <laughs> um, I, I got very adept at uh, going to crime scenes and talking to cops. It is an interesting experience to uh, get to know police pretty well. Usually you see the same faces because there aren't that many detectives who are the evening or weekend homicide detectives, even for a major city like Birmingham, Alabama. While I was there, Starting in 1979, in neighboring Atlanta, Georgia, there were the Atlanta Child Murders, which were a series of homicides of young, mostly male African Americans. They were abducted and sexually abused and murdered. And the Atlanta Police Department took a lot of heat a lot of criticism for not recognizing the series sooner. Now, Atlanta's a big place and they have plenty of murders, but they did not notice for um, many months that there were too many unsolved murders of black youth, that these appeared to be stranger killings. The children who were being murdered did not seem to know their killers. I would attend symposiums about the child murders in Atlanta, and that's when I learned for the first time the term linkage blindness and heard from experts that this is a very common problem. They sent me to Washington, D.C. to be the correspondent for the newspaper in Washington, and then I became a national correspondent, and I was assigned in 2004 to do a, a story about the optional crime, which is prostitution. In some cities, prostitutes are arrested. In other cities, they are not. In other cities, only the Johns get arrested. And so to study this phenomenon, I obtained a copy of the Uniform Crime Report because they counted sexual assault and prostitution among their crimes. And so I obtained that data set for the year 2002. And at no extra cost, the librarian threw in something I'd never heard of, the supplementary homicide report. And being curious, I opened it up and saw row after row of individual murders. And it occurred to me that it might be possible to teach a computer to recognize unconnected murders that might have been committed by the same offender. Uh, is it possible to teach a computer to overcome linkage blindness. You're already seeing all these individual murders and you're starting to see these patterns that are emerging. And is what steered you in that direction of yes. kind of going, okay, here's some of this demographic data, here's some of this geographical data. Let's see if we can make these work together and to see if, if all this information is going to provide more unique information and more helpful to us. 
Exactly right. Is it possible for a computer to do what humans can't, to recognize a particular kind of murder that goes unsolved in a particular geography? And so what are the features or the things that you are teasing out and including in your data to make up this algorithm? Well, we didn't actually start until uh, 2010. I, I spent six years whining to my, to my editors that it might be possible to do this in 2010, that my editor, a wonderful saintly man named Peter Copeland, got tired of me whining and he said, okay, Tom, go ahead and give it a try. I was given a year uh, to try to investigate unsolved murders, but in particular, the possibility that it might be possible to develop an, a computer algorithm to identify previously overlooked serial murders. And so that project became uh, the national reporting project uh, called Murder Mysteries. In fact, you can download a copy of it at our data and docs section of our website at murderdata.org. And the University of Missouri caught wind of what we were doing, and they gave me a very talented graduate student named Liz Lucas. And she and I spent the summer of 2010 um, in a process that came dangerously close to being trial and error. We found a hundred things that don't work. We took the supplementary homicide report. We assembled it over decades of murders. Our goal was to see if we could teach a computer to tell us that something awful happened in Seattle in the 1980s. That would be the Green River killings. A guy named Gary Ridgway, Gary Ridgway. Mm -hmm. killed dozens of women, strangled them, left their bodies out of doors, often in the Green River Valley. And so we tried to develop an algorithm that would tell us that something awful happened. And honestly, we, we found scores of procedures that don't work. Does the presence of a serial killer lead to an elevated rate of unsolved murder? No. Does the presence of a serial killer result in unusual patterns of the kinds of weapons used? No. Does the presence of a serial killer cause an elevated rate of female homicides? No. Would we see unusual rates of murder for particular age groups of victims or race, racial types of victims? No. That must have been so incredibly frustrating. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't uh, imagine. And Liz and I would sit down and I would tell her, okay, well, let's try this and this. And we would usually set the task in the afternoon and the next morning she would come in and tell me, nope, that didn't work. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned to find out just how Tom and his team finally cracked the code and began to spot serial murders. Also, don't forget that you can listen to The Forensic Psychologist on radio weekdays at 9 p.m. Eastern and 6 p.m. Pacific, and on podcast anytime on iHeart Podcast, Apple, Google, and Pandora. Spreading the outloud truth from sea to shine and sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. 
Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. Before the break, our guest, Tom Hargrove, was telling us about his early attempts to develop an algorithm to spot unsolved crime clusters and all the problems he had in the beginning. What seemed to work a tiny bit was looking at the rate of unsolved murders according to weapon type, the kind of method of killing it seemed that there might be something there. Liz had to go back to Columbia, Missouri to defend her master's thesis. As I, I, I drove her for the last time, and I told her uh, as she was heading out that I told her what might work uh, is a statistical procedure called cluster analysis, in which we first organize the data according to uh, type. What we did. What do you mean, Tom, when you say type? How does that work? What eventually did work was to take hundreds of thousands of murders and to turn them into tens of thousands of groups or clusters. And those groups were organized according to the county in which the murder occurred or the metropolitan area where the murder occurred, the gender of the victim. Back then, we were using age groups, so the age group of the victim and most especially the weapon that was used uh, to kill the men and the women. And then we took one more step. Once these groups were clustered, we created a new variable for each cluster, calculating what percentage of each cluster were resolved through the arrest of the offender, a clearance rate, looking for large clusters that had an extremely low clearance rate. When we did that, for the first time, Gary Ridgway's 48 victims popped up loud and clear. They were not the largest cluster, uh, shockingly enough. In fact, in first place was a cluster of 78 women who were killed with handguns in Los Angeles. There were Dozens and dozens of other clusters that also looked uh, suspicious. But that was the first time we could clearly see that something awful had happened in Seattle. And so the question is, uh, what about all those other clusters? We knew that uh, Gary Ridgway was a serial killer. Now we, we had like 162 suspicious clusters that looked very similar uh, to the Seattle Green River killer. 
And so we started investigating them. I left a voice message with the public information officer for the LAPD, and I sent him an email with the a spreadsheet of the more than 70 gunshot victims of women in Los Angeles. And I asked, could these be connected cases? Could these uh, be the result of a serial killer? And the PIO called back a while later. And as I recall, his answer was, what are you kidding? We had five serial killers. And yes, these are uh, part of their victims. It was like we had a convention here. We had five separate killers. None of them were involved with the other. They were entirely independent, but they were all killing women with handguns and they were all killing multiple women. And we eventually got all of them. It was really very interesting. It it's interesting and it's terrifying. You know, it's yeah. like, who wants yeah. to think you've got five serial killers active in your city at the same time? It raises the question, doesn't it? How often uh, does serial murder occur? We're quite convinced it, occur, it occurs far, far more often than anyone has ever acknowledged. Now, a couple of quick questions I want to ask you. One is, is there a certain cutoff that you use in terms of, okay, this is a cluster because we've had this many unsolved murders with these demographics? Well, we use uh, as our definition of serial murder, the definition that the FBI adopted in 2004, a serial murder are two or more murders that were committed by the same individual in separate incidents. We adopted the same definition. So the smallest a series can be are two. Right. So we, we organize into clusters of murders. We kept it at three operationally or two if both murders were unsolved. Once you identify that, okay, here are two or more unsolved murders in this particular location that look strikingly similar in terms of methods of murder used, in terms of some demographics, et cetera, is that kind of like a screening? And, and what I mean by that is th then do you go and try to figure out who are these people and what is their narrative and what else do they have in common? That, that's exactly what we do. So the algorithm can only put us a light onto specific murders that merit uh, additional review. We never contact local police until we have taken a cluster that looks suspicious and put names and narratives to them. So there was a 22-year-old um, African-American woman who was strangled in Chicago in June of uh, 2002. And there was another African-American woman in Chicago killed the following year, also strangled, and neither case was solved. So we go to Chicago media and try to identify the names and the narratives of those cases and do that with all of the elements in the cluster. We found that when you assemble the narratives of, of the murders that, a, that the algorithm has identified, you get a sense right away, yes or no, could this be a series? Sometimes when you do that, they seem mighty haphazard, and you can even imagine how this was a coincidence. In other cases, as in the case of the 
current investigation in Chicago, the narratives were so alarmingly similar that even just looking at press results, it just seemed to scream uh, serial killer. In the case of the Chicago cluster, the um, algorithm identified 44 at the time, and we amplified that to 51 murders when we went to the medical examiner's records in Cook County. 51 women who were strangled and none of their cases were solved. When you put narratives to those 51 murders, they were all recovered out of doors, a great many of them in empty alleyways or trash cans. Most of them were sexually disrespected. They were disrobed partially or entirely. When you, when you put all of that together, there's just no way that this is a coincidence. When women are strangled in America, 70, 75% of the time, the murder is solved. But in Chicago, among strangulation victims, hardly ever were the murders solved. That was the first red alert. But then when you dove into the narratives of the cases, it just became obvious that something horrible was going on. So I would imagine that when you have the vast majority of strangulation murder solved, it's because the person strangling is somebody that the person knows or is in a relationship with that person. Yes. In fact, most murders of women are the result of being killed by someone they know. Frequently, it's a boyfriend or a husband or someone living in the same household which is why murders of women are much more likely to be solved than murders of men. Men are at a much higher incidence of being killed by strangers or people not close to them. For women, uh, the suspect list is much shorter. And so 77% uh, of all murders of women in the United States are reported to the FBI as cleared by arrest. So I would imagine that when you have this cluster in Chicago of women who are strangled and they're not solved, that's a clue to you that perhaps these are stranger murders. Exactly right. That certainly these were um, murders that don't match the usual profile in America. And so looking for outliers is all the algorithm does. So I would, the next question I have for you is, what is the response that you get when you go to law enforcement, let's take Chicago as an example, and you go to them and you say, look, we have this algorithm and we've run it and we're seeing 50 plus women who all look very similar demographically as well as the way this person has been murdered and discovered, et cetera, et cetera. We think there's a serial killer operating. I'd like to start next door in Gary, Indiana. Back in 2010, one of the clusters that we started investigating were a series of 15 strangulations. Serial killers don't always strangle, but they are more likely uh, to have a hands-on method of killing than most other killers. They are less likely to use handguns than most other killers. In Gary, Indiana, the algorithm was signaling red alert that there were too many unsolved murders of women who were strangled. So we called the Gary Police Department and the public information officer for Gary took the call and we talked and I sent him the, the output from the computer. And he called back and said, well, I've checked with our detectives and I can tell you that there are no unsolved serial murders in Gary, Indiana, which is an impossible thing 
to say, unless all murders were solved, and most murders go unsolved in Gary, Indiana. It's a remarkable claim to make, and that's when Gary went on total radio silence. We continued to look hard at Gary. We put names and narratives to the victims, and when we did that, it looked to us like there were two serial killers, one preying upon younger victims and leaving their bodies in abandoned buildings or empty properties, and another a smaller uh, number of victims of older African-American women who were killed in their homes. In one or two cases, the homes were set on fire. It looked like two different MOs, and we still think there were two serial killers active. The Gary Police Department refused uh, to entertain or have any further conversation about the possibility that there might be a serial killer. I even sent registered letters uh, to the police chief and to the um, mayor of Gary, Indiana. <clears throat> we were worried that we were about to publish a story announcing there's a maybe a serial killer in Gary, and the reason they couldn't talk to us was they were hot on the guy's heels and were about to make an arrest and that we would mess things up. The uh, Lake County Coroner's Office agreed with us. There were far too many unsolved strangulations of women in Gary, and they started their own investigation. That was the confirmation we needed to be able to publish the story. We published the story, and then nothing much happened until 2014, four years later, when police made an arrest of a man who was responsible for killing Africa Hardy. I think she was 19 years old, found dead in a bathtub at a Motel 6 in Hammond, Indiana. They made an arrest of a man named Darren Dion Van, and he confessed and said, okay, you got me. I've been at this a while. I've been killing women since the 90s. And he took them into Gary, Indiana, and they recovered six previously unknown murder victims found disposed in abandoned buildings in Gary. And the new Gary Police Department chief held a press conference the following day. The first question he was asked was, were you aware you had a serial killer in Gary, Indiana, chief? And he said, absolutely not. And that's when we went ballistic and we published the many letters that we had sent to the Gary Police Department of, telling them that we're pretty sure you have a serial killer. I'm happy to tell you that that kind of response is extremely rare. We've had uh, conversations with other police departments, with the Cleveland Police Department in Ohio, with the Chicago Police Department in Illinois, and we've had a much better response in both cases. Uh, police have put together task forces to attempt to review cases. The task force in Cleveland has not yet been able to confirm serial murder. They were able to solve one of the cases, which is a good thing. The process of review it can be very powerful. But they can't confirm that it was a serial murder. Their detectives and we are convinced that one of the, the victims, a young girl who was uh, horribly abused, was almost certainly uh, killed by a serial killer, but uh, they couldn't prove it and neither could we. But uh, it was a positive thing in Cleveland and the Chicago Police Department continued to go over the, the 51 murders. They made an arrest recently in one of the 51 cases 
and they announced that the, the man, Mr. Hilliard, was suspected of killing others, that he may have killed two men, and they're actively investigating him for those deaths. He may not be the right serial killer. He may be a serial killer, but he may not specialized in the murder of women. They're continuing to review him for the other 50 strangulations, but they're not sure he's responsible for those other killings, and they continue to work those other cases. Not a whole lot of DNA has been recovered from those victims, but they're trying to do familial DNA matching, trying to identify who had sexual relations with those women before their deaths. You know, I'm really Um, glad to hear that the response that you got from Gary and Deanna is relatively rare. And I'm not surprised by that because I do a lot of work and interface with homicide detectives. And I think most of them are very dedicated to solving crime and are pretty open. But I'm also aware that politics can get involved in anything and including serial murder. And I'm wondering what experience you've had with that in terms of seeing politics interfere or slow down the potential investigation of a serial murder. Yeah, let me let me first say that I totally agree with you. And in fact, many of the finest human beings I've ever met are homicide detectives. It's a common phrase among homicide detectives, we speak for God. They often are about the only people who care about who got murdered. Quite often, it's disadvantaged people who are being murdered, and homicide detectives care. I, I agree with you that there's politics in everything, even murder. It's a, a simple fact that we are becoming less likely to solve murders today than we ever were. That back in the uh, 1960s, we were clearing about 90% of our homicides. Today, we're clearing only only a about 60 to 63% of our murders. And I'm afraid that that comes down to political will, that a failure to solve murder means inadequate resources have been applied by politicians to the problem of law enforcement. We invest according to what our politicians tell us to invest in, which is another reason why at the Murder Accountability Project's website at murderdata.org, you can call up the clearance rate for your local police department. If you don't like what you see, we hope that you'll have a conversation with your mayor or your city council member or your neighborhood association president and express that frustration. That we hope data itself becomes a political tool and that someday we actually turn that curve around and that we start to become more likely to solve murder rather than less. So why is that? I mean, on the one hand, we're hearing about all this advancement in DNA capability in terms of testing. We're hearing about genetic genealogy. We actually had somebody on the show who was talking about this you know, whole issue of tracking down serial offenders in particular by putting together these family trees of relatives of perpetrators. And, then, and so you read these kind of stories and you kind of go, wow, we are really on the cutting edge of, of not only solving serial murders, but murder in general in terms of anybody getting away. And then you read things like, on the one hand, the murder rate is significantly down. And on the other hand, but we're catching a lot less. And is this just politics? Is it a lack of resources? What is it? It's primarily a lack of resources, but it's become 
more complex. Part of the problem is America has become more urbanized. Most murders uh, in rural places are solved because by definition you have community policing. When a sheriff in a rural county is driving to the crime scene, in the back of his head, he's already going over the usual suspects even before he arrives. That's community policing where you know everybody. In big cities, you don't get that. So that's an issue. It's also true that courts of law increasingly demand that homicide investigations or any other criminal uh, investigation shall be held to a forensic standard. And those standards have been rising over time because of the increasing demand that, that murder investigations be based on hard science, the cost of properly investigating a murder in the last 50 years has gone up. Quite frankly, many cities would be bankrupt if they were to solve all of their murders because it's quite expensive to bring a case up to the forensic standards necessary for a successful conviction. And Court cases are not cheap either. Solving cases can be much more expensive than not solving them. We do not have enough homicide detectives. We don't have enough trained homicide technicians, crime scene analysts. All of the state crime labs all over America are horribly backed up because they can't keep abreast of all of the evidence coming in. This is, a, this is maybe a sensitive question, but it's one that I think should be asked. And that is, is the fact that when you look at serial crimes or serial murders today, that the victim pool has changed? If you look 20 years ago, the number of serial murder victims who were sex workers was maybe around 20%. And today it's over 40%. And I wonder if that influences the resources that are allocated to investigating some of these murders. Speaking in broad strokes, the nature of murder has changed so that today, the typical murder victim is an African-American. It didn't used to be that way. And I guess to, to address your question, we released a study a year ago, which you can see at our website, in which we looked at the race of victim against clearance rate. And so remember when I told you that back in the 60s, 90% of murders were solved, and today it's only about 60% or so? Mm -hmm. Well, 100% of that decline in clearance was borne by African-American victims. If you look at the other three racial groups that are counted in the supplementary homicide report, Caucasians, including ethnic Hispanic victims, Asian victims, and even Native American victims, the clearance rate has held steady or even improved a little bit with these three racial group of victims. But for African Americans, the clearance rate has plummeted. That goes back to many of the things we've already talked about, that, that African Americans have become increasingly urbanized, Major cities are overwhelmed. They don't have enough detectives. The subtle or not subtle fiscal challenges facing a great many jurisdictions overwhelm the criminal justice system. So why should we be surprised that uh, most African-American murders in most major cities go unsolved? 
We're going to take a quick break. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, please contact me at Dr. Joni Johnston. That's J-O-N-I-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N dot com. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. How are police departments using your database? Supervisors often use it when making their annual reports to their political bosses. They can compare uh, their clearance rate to other comparable cities. We've made it quite simple for police departments to, to compare their performance to everyone else. I tell detectives and supervisors when we meet in, when they have law enforcement conferences, guys, look, uh, use our data however you can. If the clearance rate is good, go into your supervisor and ask for a raise. If the clearance rate is terrible, go in and ask for more men and women because you need them. If the clearance rate is in between, well, go in and ask for both. And they usually nod when, when they hear that, that they really shouldn't be afraid of the data. The usual thing I hear from homicide detectives is, thank you for doing this. This is very, very useful to us. I, I, I don't think most police investigators, most supervisors, I don't think they're afraid of data. I don't think they're afraid of the truth. They acknowledge that their job is hard and getting harder. And the data shows when there's something wrong. And most uh, police officers will tell you, yeah, they're, we're having too many head, headwinds these days. People won't cooperate with our investigations. There is a growing disconnect in many cities between the police and the community they serve, especially in African-American communities in, in major northeastern cities. It's a very difficult relationship. And that, too, is a political problem. It takes very effective mayors and city council members to be able to turn that conversation around. You have to hold police accountable when they misperform. If a police officer takes um, a, a human life and it, that was the wrong thing to do, they must be held accountable. And that's what the Black Lives Matter movement is all about. And it can be a very positive thing. We wish them well. Their lives absolutely matter, and police must be held accountable. But defunding police is the wrong thing to do. And I think in, in the black community, you'll find most calmer heads agreeing and, and telling folk, look, we're not going to defund police. 
we very well may rewrite the charter uh, for the police department. We may instead create a Department of Public Safety. That's fine. But to defund police, to defund the process of law enforcement and criminal justice would always be a mistake. We can prove mathematically that there is an inverse relationship between the rate at which murders are cleared and the rate at which murders occur. When a city allows most murders to go unsolved and the number of cities where most murders go unsolved has been growing in recent years, when a city allows most murders to go unsolved, the rate of murder usually rise. And why wouldn't it? When you allow most killers to walk the street, nothing good happens. Exactly. Those those killers are available to kill again. They're a walking, talking testament that there are no sanctions to murder, so they inspire others. And also, the murders that they committed going unsolved prompt others to say, well, the only way I'm going to get justice is to take the law into my own hands. One of the most common motives for murder is revenge, because the criminal justice system has broken down. So there is a horrible human price to be paid when we don't adequately support law enforcement. What are your thoughts about the move toward the word that comes to mind as almost like web sleuths or citizen sleuths is what made me think about it was because I was at a a conference recently and they had a a lot of law enforcement. They had a lot of prosecutors and they had a lot of true crime fans. They had a lot of people who were extremely interested in community policing. And I was hearing a prosecutor talk. and, And one of the things that was a little bit discouraging is that he reverted to what might have been the party line 10 or 15, 20 years ago for some police departments, which is leave everything to us, as opposed to recognizing that there are people, I think, today who are amazingly interested and capable of doing online research and providing tips. And I wonder what your thoughts are. I mean, there's some of the online communities, I think you're familiar with some of them as well, web sleuths and some of the Reddit forums, which I am amazed at the amount of information that they're able to track down and put together. And and at the same time, I understand that if you're a police officer, you certainly don't want an investigation to get interfered with or tainted by someone who's going off and doing their own thing. So what are your thoughts about that? I know that web sleuths have been very effective at things like identifying unknown victims. Uh, Police often will find a body and not know who it is. And web sleuths on several occasions has been able to ID John, Jane, and Baby Doe victims. And that's very powerful. Crowdsourcing is often a very good idea. The police use crowdsourcing themselves. It's called going big. You go big with a case when you make a public appeal. And that's that's really a a wise practice. It doesn't always work, but when you have an unsolved case, you might as well ask the public's help. So the citizen detective can play a positive role. We get lots of citizen detectives who play with the data. There are armchair detectives using our website. And every once in a while, they, they do something great. There was a, a serial killer in the northern upper, upper New York State who never really was identified. And a citizen sleuth contacted me and said, could there be a serial killer here? And there was, and it was a really interesting story. 
unfortunately, the killer died, but the police were happy to talk about a case that no one had really ever heard about. And it's amazing what citizens' sleuths can do. So I, I think it can be a very positive thing. Yes, they, they should not be knocking on doors. They should not be talking to witnesses. You can really uh, mess things up. We regularly get contacted by reality TV productions and ask if we would be stars on reality TV, and we always tell them no. Uh, we do not recommend camera crews acting as detectives. First of all, police investigations are best left to police, and you really don't want roving gangs of camera crews acting uh, in the place of police. So you have to watch what you're doing. But the American citizens can have a positive role to play and often do. This might be an overwhelming question because you have so much work to do already. But I just wondered if you ever see your database expanding to other violent crimes. And I know, for example, a lot of times when you see sexually motivated serial killers, there's a long history of serial rapes that preclude that. And I can see such a use for the data that you're using for murder, particularly in those kinds of sexual assaults. Yeah, so we're nothing but nerds, computer jockeys, and some genuine serial killer hunters. We have two retired uh, FBI investigators on our board of directors who were serial killer hunters in their youth. But that having been said, today we are just nerds. And so we can only look for serial crimes when we have the data. Up until recently, the only data set that might be usable is the supplementary homicide report. There's a new standard coming that the FBI, a standard that starting next year, police must participate in an expanded data reporting system called NIBRS, the National Incident-Based Reporting System, which actually generates the same level of detail for the supplemental homicide report for 15 other indexed crimes, and that includes sexual assault and robbery. It might be possible to use our techniques on those other crimes once we start to get a serious amount of data through NIBRS. Unfortunately, we think there's a bit of a train wreck coming because of NIBRS. We surveyed all 50 states and uh, found that there are 10 states that say they will not, they're not likely to make the, the deadline of next year, and so they will not be able to report any data to NIBRS, to the FBI which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to uh, try to work around that. But the standard is that we will not accept any data from you. We, the FBI, will not accept any data from you unless it's in the NIBRS standard. We're going to try to have a conversation with the FBI. It's a little difficult right now because we're suing the FBI. So our relationship is a little <laughs> fractured, but we, we want to tell them that, that these 10 states do not expect to meet the deadline, and is there a chance that the FBI might consider taking data the old way from those 10 states? If not, then we're going to negotiate with the 10 states 
to obtain data independently of the FBI. And if they won't report to the FBI via NIBRS, then they'll report the old way to us, at least. But we're going to try to have a conversation because the new standard is, is much more complicated and uh, much harder for police to meet. Mm-hmm. But it, the, the long answer to your question is yes, it may in the future be possible to look for serial crimes and other kinds of offenses. Well, we're about out of time. And I guess the last question I always ask everyone is what would be the one thing that you would want our listeners to remember from our conversation today? To remember murderdata.org, our website, to go to it and to tell everyone about it, and to look up the rate at which murders are solved in your community. If you don't like what you see, don't keep that to yourself, but uh, be blabby, have a conversation, talk to folks, and become a force in life. That, That there's no reason that we have to live in places where most murders go unsolved. No reason at all. It comes down to people demanding uh, positive change. Well, you have certainly become a crime-fighting force yourself, and I'm so appreciative for that. I know a lot of other people are. We'll make sure that we put all the links and all that information up um, as well. But thank you so much for coming on today and talking about the Murder Accountability Project and all the work you're doing to help law enforcement link and solve serial murders. You're listening to The Forensic Psychologist. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.